The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. The scripture this morning is First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. If you're using one of the Bibles in the back of the pew, you'll find that on page 928. Again, that's First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And this is from a letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. Now concerning brotherly love, you have, pardon me, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of God. Thank you, Gwen. Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see you all this wintry day. Uh, My name is Neil. I have the privilege of serving here as one of the pastors here at Park. Um, It really is a joy. Um, It's a joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, We are in week four of a five-week series called Living the Mission of God. Living the Mission of God. So we're we're, we're taking a handful of weeks. We'll do this periodically and, and focus on different dimensions of, different facets of who are we called to be as God's people. Uh, you know, one of the, the lines we've used a handful of times has is, is been, it's not so much that God's church has a mission, but that God's mission has a church. She's like, okay, cliche, like a little turn of phrase. But I think that the, the subtlety there is actually quite significant for us. It's not like God just has these people, has this church, and he's like, well, I need to, I need to figure out something for them to do. So, you know, create a mission. Let's create a mission statement and kind of orient them around certain goals and, and move them forward. But rather, rather, because of who God is, uh, because of his character, his righteousness, his beauty, his justice, his love, his mercy, his holiness, by virtue of who God is, he moves out into the world. He moves out to proclaim and to demonstrate and portray who he is, putting his character on display. And so he saves a people for himself in order to do that, to proclaim, to demonstrate, and to do that in every facet of our lives. So we're taking these five weeks to hit on some of those different areas of what it looks like to, uh, to image God well as his church, scattered in the many places he calls us to go. Um, as those who, who faithfully represent him. And this morning, uh, we are looking at uh, faith and work. Faith and work. What does it mean that we are followers of Jesus, that we've been restored into to right relationship, reconciled in a right relationship with, with God through Jesus? What does that mean for the stuff that we do throughout much of the rest of our lives? When we're not resting or different types of recreation or whatever else, when we are doing the, the things with our hands, with our minds, creating new things, relating to other people, the work, whether it's paid or unpaid, the work we're called to do, how do we live on mission? 
How is that a part of the mission of God? Not just kind of the, the arena or the space where the mission of God could take place if we choose to, but actually the work itself is what we are called to as God's people, restored into relationship with him so that we can bring restoration everywhere he's called us to go. Um, and that's true whether you're, you're nine or you're 90. It's true whether you're a student or uh, you're in your dream job or you're, you're looking for a job right now, maybe you're between jobs. Uh, maybe you're in a, a season of retirement. Uh, maybe there are just like real frustrations that you're feeling in your work. So many things come up when we, we begin talking about this, this topic of work. All of that, God invites us to, to bring before him and to bring to bear and, and to hear what, what he has to say about it. Uh, so let me, let me pray for us and then we will, we'll dive in together. Father, thank you uh, for working on our behalf. I thank you for, for working to make this beautiful world, to, uh, to create us as those who image you, to, to relate to you, to relate to this world around us. That you didn't make some sort of flat gray world, but it's, it's in three dimensions and it's full of color and taste and flavor and sounds and sights and uh, things that we can experience and take in. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work. Thank you that, that he has worked on our behalf in such a way that we're able to know your love, to receive your love, to hear your voice of love and commendation again. And thank you that we get to gather as your people even now. And may you, by your spirit, speak into the places of our souls, uh, the, the places where we have just a, an aching, a longing for something to be different, the places of, of celebration and just felt joy, and everywhere in between, just the, the monotony of some of our days. May all of that help us to, to feel that, that you see us in that. You know the particulars of it. You're not absent in the midst of it, and you actually have something to say to us. So give us ears to hear. Give us a, a sensitivity to you, and please work for your glory and for our good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The movie that kept coming back to mind um, as I was preparing for this, is the movie that I've, I've probably seen more than any other movie in my life. It's one that we would watch every Christmas Eve uh, before going to bed growing up. And my, my wife, Erin, has graciously adopted this as a, as a new family tradition for us as well. But we watched the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, which my brother-in-law told me a few years ago. He's like, Neil, that, that's not a Christmas movie. Personally offended. Personally offended, Joe. Um, I think it's a Christmas movie. I think it's a beautiful, redemptive Christmas story. Uh, but the story of It's a Wonderful Life, you, you have this guy, George Bailey, who grown up in the 20s and in the 30s, and then a lot of the movie takes place in the 40s, in this town, Bedford Falls, uh, which is kind of your regular, I guess, small to mid-sized town. And he is, he's your quintessential kind of big fish in a small pond, right? very ambitious, gifted, very kind of forward, upfront personality, always kind of leading the charge, doing different types of things. But at the same time, he's deeply attentive to the needs of those around him. He actually cares for his community, cares for his family, cares for the, the need and opportunity right in front of him. And so again and again, uh, he's brought to this place where he has to choose, uh, do, do I pursue the ambition in the pursuit that I have? Or do I stick around in Bedford Falls, the place that he's been trying to get out of ever since he was a kid? You know, he, he has these dreams that he wants to, to save enough money to go to college. He wants to go play football. 
Uh, he wants to uh, build skyscrapers and bridges and travel the world and do all these things to have real impact and influence in the world where his name is known, his work is recognized. But then over and over again in the movie, he, he's met with these decision points where for him to not stick around in Bedford Falls and take responsibility for what's in front of him it would mean something significant would have to, to fail. One of those is when uh, he's about to, George is about to leave for college and his father dies of a stroke. And George is basically just like holding down the fort, waiting until his brother could graduate high school, take over his position, and then he could move on, go to college, and do all the things that he had been dreaming about. Right before he leaves, his father dies. And the, the way that it, it works itself out is the only way that his business can survive is for George to take it over. The, the board won't vote any other direction. Their, their, their business is to provide small loans to the working class poor, uh, to, to get a house, uh, to have kind of, you know, the basic needs they have in their community. There's that scene when the, when the, if you guys have seen the movie, he's about to walk out. He's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm headed out. I'm, I'm going to college. To, like, I leave now. Like, I'm, I'm heading out. And the, the camera zooms in up on his face and you see him just like processing, what do I do in this moment? And he decides to stick around. He decides to stick around. Again and again, this is the, the movement of his life. He says, I'm going to I'm going to take what's in front of me and I'm going to do with it what I can. Well, it finally hits the point in his life. He feels like he's living this kind of insignificant, just very low-level life where crisis hits that he cannot fix. Usually he can show up. George can show up and he can make it happen. This time he can't. His business partner, uh, his, his uncle, Uncle Billy, um, he, in a moment of pride, loses the $8,000 deposit they're about to put in, which in today's dollars is somewhere over $130,000. Loses it. Can't find it. They're searching everywhere. They're about to go to jail for bank fraud because they cannot find this money. And, and, and George is just like at the, the end of himself. He's like, I, I cannot fix this. And I'll spare you some of the details. Go back and watch the movie. But he, he's then met uh, by his guardian angel. Which the theology nerd in me is like, eh, that's not in the Bible. Um, but it really works in the movie. Clarence, got to love Clarence. Uh, Clarence shows up. He's just kind of this like quirky guardian angel. And it moves through the story. And eventually, uh, he gives George the ability to see what life would be like there in Bedford Falls as if he had never been born. As if all the, the little things that he had done, all the things that he felt were so insignificant, that he had never done any of them because he had never been born. And so he begins seeing the people and going to the places and, and things are, are quite different than what he had experienced before. And it, it just sends him into this disorienting kind of spiral of like, what is happening? And then Clarence comes to him and says, George, you, you've been give, given an incredible gift. The ability to see what the world would be like without you. And what he realizes in that moment in those handful of moments, that all of his small little relationships and decisions, the work he did, the things he invested in, the things that he felt like, this, this is, these are not my dreams. These are not my passions. These are not the things that, that I feel like I have so much drive and ambition to do something, have real impact. But rather, he just loved the people around him in a faithful way. He felt like it was so menial. What real effect did that have? And he began to see how this relationship, that decision, him showing up, him caring, him investing, him doing his work day after day after day actually had these real ripple effects throughout an entire community. And I wonder for us, have we considered 
probably hard for us to consider all the ways that our lives affect those around us through the ways that we show up day in, day out. So we're looking at faith and work this morning. Our framing text is the one that Gwen read for us out of 1 Thessalonians 4. You know, Paul's writing to this church that he had planted um, there in, in Thessalonica, which is modern-day Thessaloniki, which is way more fun. Um, but he planted this church, and it, it's helpful to understand some of the, even kind of the economic background of this community. Um, so they're port city, major road that goes through them, a lot of natural resources. I mean, this is a pretty prosperous area. And, and their economic system was built upon the, the patron-client relationship. So you picture in, in Rome, um, you've got the emperor who's kind of the, the chief patron, who then would, would be the benefactor, would give you know, financial gifts and status and everything else uh, to these clients. And then a lot of them would stick around, but others would go elsewhere. And so some of them would be in places like Thessalonica. Now, if you could get in good with one of these clients, who then in turn would become a patron and give some of their you know, benefits uh, from Rome to you, then you pretty much have it made. As long as you can kind of maintain this relationship uh, you really don't have to, to work that hard. Uh, you really don't have to you can kind of settle in and find a lot of comforts and yet work as little or as much as you want to. But this is, you, you kind of have it made at that point. Uh, you mix in uh, some kind of odd theology uh, that the church was, was wrestling with about kind of what the future held in the end times and the, the value of the present world and the, and the work we do. And, and Paul's writing into this context. I think it's, it's maybe easy to, to distance ourselves from a community like that because that's not how our economic system operates. Uh, but I think there, there are probably some, some areas of, of connection for us. Think about in a place like Denver in 2023, how often do we do just enough in our work to be able to, to craft a, a good life elsewhere? You know, just enough work to have enough money, to have enough free time to go do the things that we really want to, to be involved in. Where do we rest on the generosity of other people, family members, the government, philanthropists, whatever else, instead of adding value through the work that we can do, we're relying purely upon um, other people to do it. What about for those in a season of retirement? Say, oh, finally I've arrived. Now I can, I can just live for myself. Now I, I can just kind of, the life that I've been trying to build for so long, now I've got, you know, whatever years remaining to just enjoy that and kind of settle into these comforts. How often do we play small with the gifts and opportunities God has given to us? And we don't take the promotion or the job move or the opportunity in front of us because we're like, well, I don't, the sacrifice is made there, sure. Um, I see how I could really be a good fit here. I could really invest here. I could really do something there. But this seems safer. This seems less risky. Where are we self-protective with our abilities instead of leveraging our lives in, in this ongoing sacrifice for the life and the good of the world around us? It's like we have a lot of points of parallel. But here's what, what Paul has to say in these verses. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. He's saying, well done. You like each other. You love each other. You're, you're caring for one another. A small group is going well. Like you enjoy your ski weekends. Like things are, are nice relationally in the way that you care for one another. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent 
on no one. What the church had begun to do in the relationship to work, and I think is, is relevant for us as well, is to, to fail to see that work is a, if not the primary means through which we demonstrate to the world who is this God that we serve? Who is this God who has made us alive in Jesus? How has he structured humanity in order to, to use our gifts and abilities, the opportunities in front of us to lay that down, imaging Jesus and his sacrifice for us for the life of the world, to see the good of our neighbor. So if I have a, a singular aim for this sermon, I think I do, it's this. It's for us all to be able to, to see who you are and to reawaken in you, or perhaps awaken for the first time, a love for where you are, what you have, and how you may love your neighbor through your everyday work. I want to do that with four truths, three questions, and one invitation. So here we go. First truth, God made everything and it's bursting with possibility. God made everything and it's bursting with possibility. We saw this in the, the call to worship out of Genesis 1. You have this cadence of, of God creating space and context, and then he fills it with material things, and he says, this is good. Create space, context, fills it with material things. This is good. Again and again and again, says, this is good, it's good, it's good. Gets to, 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 to the last day and, and finally looks at all of creation and says, this is very good. What God has made, what he has created, the first word about it is that it's good. But then we go on in Genesis 2 where we kind of mine into more of, of, a, of a particular narrowed scope on creation. Look at me in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. God's a gardener. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God, for, uh, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here you have God creating a garden and a forest, uh, which is just the, the raw material that leads into so much more. Think about what comes from a garden, the good food that we're able to eat, the beauty that we're able to enjoy. Uh, think about from trees, the, the, the lumber that, that is used in construction to build things. I mean, much of what we're in right now, the, the pews that you're sitting on right now. Um, I don't know if that's prefab stuff over there, but it's like there, there's wood somewhere in this building. Like wood is making this possible for us to be here right now. He goes on. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So here we have the, the nourishing waters. It nourishes us and quenching our thirst, but it's also a means of, of exploration, of transportation, of a fishing industry, of power that comes through water. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. I love these little, like, seeming throwaway lines. Like, this is not just gold and Havilah. This is the best kind of gold. This is the, the most beautiful and, and purest of gold. You think about even how gold has functioned throughout history. Yes, something of, of great value and is in jewelry and other, other, other things we may, we may purchase. But it's also the, the very grounding for the economic system, the monetary system throughout the world. I mean, in the States, we had gold, the, the literal gold standard until, what, 76, uh, when we moved to a different type of currency. But here, we just have, it's teeming with possibility. God is giving these, these like initial ingredients, these raw materials of what could be through what is cultivated out of it. Middle of verse 12, bdellium and onyx stone are there. So here we're getting into to minerals, into mining. It's like, what are the things that are, that are in the earth that actually through human labor can be drawn out and made into something useful? 
on your smartphone right now is possible because of something called rare earth minerals, most of which exist on the other side of the world. Um, and we have to extract those, figure out how to use them, and then actually put them into our technology. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So here we have this picture of God creating this flourishing land. It's beautiful, it's good, he's declared it to be good, and there's so much possibility, so, so much that can be drawn out of these raw materials of creation. And then he places humanity within it. That's truth number two. Humans are made for work and rest. Focusing on rest, on, on work here. We need a cadence of both, but here we're focused on work. Humans are made for work. Look at the very next line, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God creates humanity, places us in the midst of this garden to work and to keep the land. Another way you could translate that is to cultivate it and to protect it, to draw out what's possible, and then to, 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 to prevent the, the threats, internal or external, from, from keeping it from bearing its fruit, to leading to the goodness that it's designed to lead to. And so God makes us as those who image him, who are like him in certain respects, but are able to relate to him as those who submit to him, who trust him, who listen to his voice. We're made with, with bodies uh, that, that have strength and hands and, and, and can do things, uh, with minds that can imagine and create, can think through and problem solve. Uh, we have skin, which allows us to, to experience different sensations and, and actually some, somehow connected physiologically uh, to us more deeply. We have emotions to be able to feel and to relate. We have voices to speak. And we have the ability to, to design things as those who image God in all of our faculties. In short, we're able to do what Andy Crouch, uh, defi he defines culture as what we make of the world. What we make of the world. That's what we make physically, stuff we can see and interact with, but also what we make of it intellectually, how we process it, how we make sense of it, how we piece it together. Another author, William Edgar, says this, at a broader level, humanity was called to spread the blessings of Eden to all the earth. This would mean managing all of its creatures and resources for good purposes, to allow their beauty to flourish, to use them wisely and kindly, and to promote well-being for all. Embedded in this human activity is, at least in germ form, the development of agriculture, the arts, economics, family dynamics, and everything that contributes to human flourishing to the glory of God. This was the original design of humanity and the world that he placed us within. Before there's anything broken, there's any sin, anything has gone wrong, God places us in the middle of this garden and says, spread these blessings, extend the borders of Eden through your work, through the ways in which you relate to one another, develop culture, start businesses, trade goods and services, start families, invent new things, be creative, imagine what could be and then go live into it. That's what God calls humanity to from the beginning. But we know things are, don't often work themselves out that way. We see in verse, verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this is, this is not God saying, Hey, I made this beautiful world, but I'm going to keep some of the goodness away from you. And so I'm going to have an arbitrary rule that just kind of keeps you away. 
Rather, this is God saying, here's a beautiful world for you to go image me in the midst of through your daily tasks, through the the ways in which you relate. But trust me, trust my voice in discerning what is good and evil. This idea of the the knowledge of good and evil, it's what parents in Jewish society were were meant to do uh, in helping their their kids grow up into moral maturity. Say, no, kids, don't don't define for yourself what is true and false, what is right and wrong. Your parents are here to, to help to help you discern, help you understand, help you, help you to see the world through a moral lens. Like the, there is goodness. But there's also a threat to that goodness. We need to see those for what they are. And so what God is saying is, I've made you. There's so much to enjoy. Come up under my voice and trust me. Trust me. This is what's good and leads to life. This is what will lead to your death and ultimately destroy you. But instead of trusting that voice, we see this play out again and again in our own lives and throughout history. We stepped outside of that and said, no, we would like to define good and evil on our own. We would like to say, what would be good for me? What would lead to joy? What would lead to a thriving life? I'm going to decide those ways. And I'm going to call the other things evil. And what that did is not only broke that sin, that original sin, not only broke our relationship with God, it not only broke our relationship with one another, but it also broke our relationship with the created world at large through the very work that we do, through the tasks that we engage. It's such that the work actually works back against us. Look at me over in Genesis 3, starting in verse 17. I mean, here we're seeing God explain, this is what life is going to look like outside of my good reign. Now, when sin and brokenness enter in, this is, this is what you can expect to experience. And here he's speaking specifically to work. And to Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I think we all experience this. Even if you're like, hey, work world is, is not too tough for me right now. Maybe you're in your dream job. Maybe you love what you do on a regular basis. We still feel the effects of the brokenness, of the sin in our work. The work works back against us. There are thorns and thistles almost everywhere. It comes out relationally. comes out in, in not seeing the fruitfulness of our work, the projects that we're working on, the conversations we're having, the things we're trying to push into. We, we don't see it doing the type of thing, the type of cultivation that we long for it to bear. And what's more, we actually turn work into this means by which we can gain an identity apart from God. It's like, oh, if I can just be successful enough, if I can get the promotion, if I can have the right title, if I can be recognized in certain ways, if I can make enough money, if I can craft a certain lifestyle, work fits into that. We say, this is what makes me what I am. And this is, this is what gives me an identity. This is what makes me worthwhile. And it's into this context, it's into this space, into this broken world that Jesus Christ enters in. A God taking on human, a human body. A God actually stepping into the brokenness and experiencing the material creation. Walking perfectly, listening to the voice of the Father consistently, faithfully, obeying him. Being a worker himself, portraying perfectly the image of God, the very thing that we're designed to do, but we have failed to do. But as he steps into that society, into that culture, and begins to speak true things, 
and lead people into relationship with God, that culture wants to spit him back out. And so eventually they kill him. They crucify him. And they nail him to a tree and say, no, we don't want to hear that message. We don't want to listen to you. It's threatening too much of our identity through our own work. We, We don't want that. And so then Jesus performs the most important, the most necessary work on our behalf. That's the work of atonement on the cross. That he bears our sin. He bears our shame. He bears the brokenness. All the things that come from that sin, he bears upon himself, his own body, shedding his own blood. He performs that work and then raises to new life on the third day so that we may be redeemed by God. And this is our third truth. God redeemed people to make us fully human again. God redeemed us to make us fully human again. I've got too many pages up here. So he, through his work on the cross, he's brought us into a restored relationship with him. But sometimes I think we, we can focus rightly um, on what are we saved from and then fail to recognize what are we saved for. Yes, we were saved from, from death, we were saved from sin, we were saved from brokenness, and we were saved from the kingdom of darkness, but what are we saved for? What is the life that flows out of one who has been united to Jesus? I think we see in, in Ephesians chapter 2, which we were here last week, Max Griffiths referenced this passage as well, but um, we see in, in Ephesians chapter 2, um, look with me in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our work does not bring us back to God. Us being righteous enough, us being successful enough, us uh, being recognized in in, in the things that we can do, uh, us feeling personally satisfied in the work we do, none of those things will bring us back to God and, and, and reconcile us in relationship to him. That is, by grace, through faith, through the work of Jesus. We needed the work of, the, of another, and Christ has come to do that. And then look with me in verse 10. Four, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because of the work of Jesus, emerging from the work of Jesus, we're his workmanship with things to do, with work to do. A type of work that now flows out of the person who's been redeemed. See, God, God actually restores our humanity in relating to us. He knows what it means to be human because he created us to be human. And as we relate to him and experience his love and submit to his voice, we're able to walk in that humanity more and more fully. And that leads us to the fourth truth. God is renewing all things largely through our work. God is renewing all things largely through our Work. Look at me in Revelation chapter 22. You know, what we have in, in, Genesis, or in, uh, in Revelation 21 and 22 is a vision of, a picture of, what the, the new heavens and new earth looks like when God comes to reign perfectly. Well, there's, there's no more brokenness in the world. There's no more sin. There's no more rebellion against God. All the injustices have been corrected. All the, the wrongs have been righted. This is what life in God's good kingdom, fully dwelling with one another and in his presence, looks like. And here's part of that picture. Verse 1. That the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Did you see it there in verse 2? What began as a garden in Genesis 1 and 2 ends up as a city, as a garden city. You've got the, you've got the tree, it's got you know, the, the 12 kinds of fruit, it's for the healing of the nations, it's kind of outward focus where the fruitfulness of that tree, of this life, moves outward for the sake of the other, for the sake of the world, moving beyond its, its, its boundaries. But it's in the midst of, of a city. Now, how do cities get there? Well, through work, through labor, through investing time and talent and gifts and opportunities uh, to craft something, to build something. And that is what God is doing, building a new spiritual city that will endure into the new heavens and new earth. That is what he is doing even now. Our everyday work is somehow contributing to this future Garden City. Uh, Greg Forrester defines work this way. Work is everything we do to serve people and make the world a better place. This explains why work takes up most of life. God made us that way. It's simple, really. God wants human beings to serve and bless one another. So he designed us such that serving others and making the world a better place, working, is what we do most of the time. So kind of pulling out from all right, what's, what's the paycheck? Is there a paycheck? What are the things I do? What sphere do I work in? All of that matters. But first, we must recognize the things we do on a regular basis, the way that we leverage our lives, the experience, the education, the, the, the in- intellect, the opportunities in front of us, the relationships we have, the influence we have, all of those things, no matter what context that comes to bear in, whether we get a paycheck for it or not, this is work. And it's work that we're designed to do as those who faithfully image God, living more and more fully as humans. And really, this is the, the primary way that we, we fulfill the, the great commandment to, to love God and love neighbor. To love God and love neighbor. I, I love what, what Gene Veith says about this. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, observed Luther, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread. And he does give us our daily bread. He does it by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread, the person who prepared our meal. We might today add the truck drivers who hauled the produce, the factory workers in the food processing plant, the warehousemen, the wholesale distributors, the stock boys, advertisers, lawyers, agricultural scientists, mechanical engineers, and every other player in the nation's economic system. The ways in which we show up and do our daily work we're loving our neighbors. We don't always see the fruitfulness of it. We don't always see the end user of it. But somehow in the supply chain, in the economic system, in the complexity of it, we are showing up and we are investing our labor to love the other. So let's bring these four truths into three questions for our individual daily lives. First question is this, who are you? Who are you? And there's so many different ways to potentially define that and so many different people who would love to define that for you and, and different messages and voices from, from our, our history, our family of origin, whatever else, maybe defining that for us. But, but who are we? 
I think in the world, a lot of times this is, you know, what do you do? Uh, maybe what are you worth in terms of kind of a, a financial net worth? Uh, you know, what's your job title? Uh, how satisfied are you in the work that you do? Uh, how successful are you? How recognized are you in your field? So many different ways that we try to size people up in discerning who are you. And even in the midst of that, so much unpaid work goes unrecognized. You know, recognizing the, the work of, of parenthood. You know, think of so many in our church that um, as moms, that the primary avenue work is investing in these little lives, trying to, to cultivate life, to, to, to instill in them particular values, to, to image God, to help them understand, what do I do with, with being a, a toddler and then a grade schooler and then okay, I'm asking new questions and, and parents that are investing. And I think specifically of, of moms that I've talked to, you know, people, people ask the question sometimes, oh, do you work? I'm like, Really? <laughs> <laughs> Have you considered the scope of what a mom does, investing in, caring for these children, giving her life away again and again and again? Yes, that applies to, to dads as well, absolutely. But thinking of, of so many moms in our church family who are giving of themselves to invest in the life of another. No paycheck. Our worldly economic system doesn't have a whole lot of value for that. It's deeply valuable. In God's economy, it's deeply, deeply valuable. He sees you in it. But, but even apart from all of this, this question of, of who, who are we? Who are you? I want you to hear this. You are a human person made as an image of God in the world. Corrupted by sin, yes. Unable to bring yourself back to God, yes. But one whom God has pursued with his love and sacrifice through Jesus Christ. And if you put your trust in Jesus, then you have his seal of affection and delight placed upon you in a way that will not change. You're now freed up to re-engage that original commission, that first mandate in the Bible, to accurately, though imperfectly, reflect God in the world through your work. We'll often ask our boys, usually before bedtime, is there anything you can do to make, make us stop loving you, make me stop loving you? You know, every who's five now, sometimes he'd be like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, he did this last night, I was like, okay, what, what? What could you do? He thought about it for a minute. He's like, what if I break your mind? <laughs> I was like, I might have to think about that one for a minute. But yes, buddy, I would still, I would still love you. He's like, okay, what if I break your body and your mind? You still love me. It's like, there might not be much of me left. But yes, what's there? I will love you. Sure, there are moments when I feel like he is breaking my mind, even at five. There's nothing Everett or Asher could do to make me stop loving them. Nothing. No set of decisions, no life choices, no scenario that's imaginable that, that, would, that would cause my affection and my delight toward them to go away. How much more, how much more does the perfect, eternal, loving God set his seal of affection upon us as his people? How much more are we secure in that love that God in Jesus Christ who has come to us, who has moved toward us in our sin and rebellion and said, I will take all of it so that I can have relationship with you again. Receive my love. Receive my delight. Receive this new identity. Who are we? We're the sons and daughters of God, made so through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And his love is for us and it's unchanging. So understanding that, you need to allow that to, to sink in. The next question, 
Where are you and what do you have? Where are you and what do you have? I think sometimes it's helpful just to have a, a simple like, life audit. Like, what are the things that I do in a day? What if you just wrote everything down from the, the most kind of grandiose to the, the most mundane task of brushing your teeth? Uh, you know, we're afforded as Christians the beauty of, of honesty. We can be honest about the stuff that we're really maybe proud of and the things that are like, eh, I'd rather not think about it. I spent a lot of time doing this or things that I really don't want to be involved in, but I, I did this last week. Jesus invites us to this honesty where we can, we can name those things because his, his love is secure, has secured us. But also, where has God placed you? Where do you give your time, your energy, your talents, your abilities? The things that you have to offer the world, where, where do you apply them? Where do you give them week in, week out? When you think of, of, of this idea of calling, I think so often our, our, our conception of calling is, well, what are my kind of deepest desires and passions? And am I able to, to kind of check all those boxes in, in what my workaday world looks like? When that happens, wonderful. Usually not the case. But really, when you look at it, the biblical definition and what kind of gets teased out of this idea of calling, in one, one place it's really telling in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul talks about uh, our calling, which is fundamentally, primarily, to Jesus. He's like, you can live this calling out wherever you are, wherever he's placed you. He actually addresses slaves that were in that, in that church. He's like, yes, get your freedom if you can, but if you can't, you can still live out this calling. We are able to live as those called by Jesus into relationship with him, whatever our context looks like. And so it's recognizing that God has intentionally placed us where we are. It may not be forever. It may just be a season. Maybe it changes this week. Maybe you're in, in kind of flux right now. But God, in his sovereignty, in his kindness, has intentionally placed you where you are with good reason. This leads to our last question. How might you respond? How might you respond? What's next? Maybe it's to stay right where you are. Maybe you don't have much of an option. Uh, maybe uh, you're kind of in a discernment period right now. And what are the questions that should be, you should be asking? I think really what we have to pay the most attention to is what's driving how we're answering that question. Oftentimes what finds its way in is, is something to the effect of how do I build my best life for me? How do I become the most comfortable? How do I become the most successful? How do I kind of craft the thing that makes me feel good? Or how do I escape the uncomfortable? At least if I can just get away from this hard circumstance. Maybe, maybe failing to recognize that it's often in the uncomfortable that God is doing the most work in us. He's drawing things out in us when it's uncomfortable. So when we stick around, we get to see some of the fruit of his labor in us. I think a better question for us is, what allows me to best love God and love neighbor? How do I take all that he's given to me where I am right now in this season with the opportunities in front of me? How do I, I live my life glorifying God and loving the people around me? How do I love God and love neighbor? And this invites us into our invitation. I invite you to stop trying to be impressive. I invite you to stop trying to be significant or to, to be worthy or to be successful or to make a name for yourself. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. We've all been there. We all find ourselves in it again and again. But we're actually freed up to not have to do that anymore. We're free to be ordinary. To be ordinary. To, to recognize the calling upon our lives and to, to give what he's given to us away for those around us. I really appreciate what Michael Horton says, actually in his book titled Ordinary. It says this, sometimes chasing your dreams can be easier than just being who we are, where God has placed you with the gifts he has given to you. 
Contentment is the virtue that contrasts with restlessness, ambition, avarice. It means realizing once again that we are not our own. As pastors or parishioners, parents or children, employers or, or employees, it is the Lord's to give and to take away. He is building his church. It is his ministry that is saving and building up his body. Even our common callings in the world are not really our own, but they are God's work of supplying others, including ourselves, with what the whole of society needs. There's a lot of work to be done, but it is his work that he is doing through us in daily and mostly ordinary ways. Here's the invitation. Humbly, honestly wield who you are, where you are, and what you have to love God and to love neighbor through the everyday things you do. And then processing this with the, with the team last, or a couple Tuesdays ago, I think it was JD's like, make it shorter. So here, here's the shorter one. It was a good word. Give your life away for the life of the world through your everyday work. Give your life away for the life of the world through your everyday work. Built upon the work of Jesus because of what he's freed us to do, and begin to, to walk more fully in what it means to be human again, we're able to, to love and to bless our neighbors through the work that we do, seeking the good of those around us. The week before, or the week between Christmas and New Year's, and remember we had that, that pretty, those who were in town, uh, we had a really heavy snow um, that just like destroyed power grids across the, the front range, it seemed like. Um, and we, we were one of the homes impacted by this. Uh, so it's 10.30 at night, and all of a sudden, everything just shuts off and, you know, pull up, check in on, on Excel's website, and you see the dots all across the Denver metro area. It's like, oh, we're working on the outage here and here and here and here. And, and they give me, you know, so kind, they, they give me a little update of, oh, no worries, um, we'll have it up and running again by 3.45 tomorrow uh, p.m. Okay. So I'm like envisioning how do we carve out some sort of fridge or freezer to put, we just gone to the grocery store that day. So we're like, how do we get all of our food so it doesn't spoil? Let's like pack it in there. It's going to be a low of 17 that night. Um, so let's like layer our kids with blankets. We have no heat source. Um, here we are. 4 a.m. Everything kicks back on. And almost brought me to the, to the point of tears, recognizing all through the night, probably for about 24 hours straight, there are teams of people all across Denver, all across the suburbs, who are giving up comfort, who are sacrificing time with family, with friends, they're sacrificing rest, being inside just like a warm home, doing work that I cannot do for myself. I can't fix that, I don't, I don't know how. But they're out there giving of themselves, giving of their labor to allow me to have heat in my home, to have refrigeration for my food to have lights on so I can spend time with my, my wife and my boys. Our work, how we show up, whether or not we ever see the neighbors that actually benefit from that work, it has real effect. It, it has real fruit that, that is born throughout this society, throughout our city, throughout uh, this, this very interconnected world that we work and we live and we play within. You know, I've never met the Excel workers that were repairing that. They've never met me, and yet they were loving me through their daily labor. So what might this mean for your everyday work? Now, whether you're in the medical field, and you, you may not f see or feel the, the, the whole stories that, that come from the work that you do. Maybe it's more behind the scenes, or maybe you never follow up with a particular individual who came to see you, but you showing up again and again actually leads to 
a better life. You're loving them. Maybe you work in finance. You're taking, you're taking what is chaotic for so many people who don't know how, many, how to make sense of those things, numbers and budgets and everything else, and pull it together to make order out of chaos, to make it useful for the world of commerce so that individuals and families can plan for the future, maybe send their kids to college, maybe take a vacation. That's a lot of goods and services to be traded within our economy. Nonprofit workers, you're filling a space that is, is often not recognized in society as not able to turn a profit or it's just areas or demographics that won't be served. And you're showing up in those spaces again and again. Those who work in government, they're trying to help people relate in a very complex society. How do you organize, coordinate, make decisions, move toward the just and the good and, and the decisions you're making, the ways that you, you decide within it? Those that are in business, if you're an entrepreneur, you're coming up with new ideas of how, how do you, you serve and bless the world where there's an opportunity, what good or service is currently lacking? For those who are retired, often, often this is, is very much a, a, taking the, the wealth of your experience and sharing that with the next generations. Do you know how many people in this room long for last service, long for a mentor, just long for someone to show up with them and, and care for them and speak into their life and ask questions? For those in education, cultivating the life of the mind, trying to help people recognize, like, what should I value? How do I make sense of these things? How do I organize the data so they too can leverage their lives for the good of others? Think about the clients, the customers, the coworkers, the bosses, the, the fellow employees, your employers, everyone that you interact with and that your work touches on a, on a daily and a weekly basis. These are your neighbors that you're able to love, to serve, to care for, and the ways in which you show up in your daily work. And this is all part of what God has called us to in his mission. I like what Chris Wright says. You set forth every morning into that public square that is both the world of God's creation and the world of Satan's usurped and temporary dominion, as well as the world of your participation in God's mission. Every day when you wake up, that's what you're stepping into. Whether it's paid or unpaid, whether it's recognized as valuable in this world or not, whether you enjoy it or not, you're showing up to do work that is actually integral to the mission of God. As one who has received the Spirit of God through the salvation of Jesus, you're able to go and do good work that bears witness to who this God is that we serve. This God who loves us, who sees us, who's drawn us to himself, and then sends us back out to testify to himself. But we want to help equip you guys to do this in, in even uh, better ways. And so I want to invite uh, Joanna Meyer and Kyle Nelson to the stage. They're going to share about uh, a few opportunities that are coming up for us as a church and also more broadly as a network. So please welcome them. Hello. For those of you I don't know, my name is Kyle Nelson. I work on staff here, and um, it is my pleasure to introduce you to a longtime friend, Joanna Meyer. Joanna serves as the Director of Public Relations with the Denver Institute for Faith and Work, as well as she is the founder of Women Work and Calling. And so, um, Denver Institute for Faith and Work, if you're not familiar, we have been a partner with them for a long time, and so we're excited to have her here just to share a little bit more about what Denver Institute for Faith and Work does. Yeah, it's fascinating to be here and to hear the sermon on faith and work because often when I stand up here meeting with friends at different churches, you have to make a case for why work matters. And what I love about what you're doing at Park Church is that you're discipling your congregation to walk with God in all of life. Um, so I don't have to make that case here. 
I can just say amen to what, what Neil just preached. Um, but Denver Institute partners with local churches. We take the amazing teaching on work that you heard today, and we take it the next mile in the discipleship and lives of Christians in our community. Um, and we do that through gathering people, inspiring and equipping them to be serving God and neighbor through their daily work. Uh, and a few, we do all kinds of stuff, but I'll highlight just a couple that might be relevant to you. We convene smaller gatherings called Colorado Conversations to address common issues related to faith and work or issues local to Denver. Things like, how do you deal with anxiety in the workplace? Or how does being a Christian affect the way you approach a managerial relationship on the job? Or local issues like, how can Christians engage issues like affordable housing or economic inequity through our leadership on our jobs? Those are small, easy, like just come in the front door and get to know us opportunities. Um, We also convene bigger gatherings like Business for the Common Good and Women Work and Calling. Business for the Common Good is coming up. It's a month away. It's Friday, March 3rd, downtown at the Grand Hyatt. We'll have more than 300 of the uh, top Christian business leaders in our community gathering to talk about how do we steward the wealth and the power that comes with business and organizational leadership for the greater good. It's a fascinating conversation. And then Women Working Calling, which I'll tell you about in a second, is in the fall. Yes. Well, we're excited, too, because we are partnering with the Denver Institute for Faith and Work to host two unique events just for our church body and any of your colleagues or friends that you want to invite along. So Joanna is the keynote for our women's event this Tuesday, um, which is a little taste of maybe Women Working Calling. And if you want to share a little bit about that. And I forgot to mention our 5280 Fellowship, too, which is a like... How could I forget that? That's like the keynote or keystone of some of our programming. But that's a a discipleship program for people in the first half of their careers that focuses around faith, work, and culture, um, which I'd be happy to tell you about. But Women Work in Calling started a number of years ago. We felt like women were hungry to understand how do I bring all that I am, all that we are, to all that God is doing in the world. Um, And often in our faith communities, that's not an area of discipleship. Um, We focus on our personal relationship with God, our relational reflections of our callings, but rarely are we discipling Christian women for godly influence in public life. And so that conversation has grown from being a local gathering to now a national initiative, fully developed program area, discipling Christian women um, to steward all of their gifts in the world. And what we'll be talking about Tuesday night is a little more holistic. We're going to talk about um, content that could apply to any woman, about identity, integration, and influence. And in our walk with God, what does it look like to camp out in all of those three areas as it relates to their God-given giftedness? And lest you think the conversation is only for people that are in a certain stage of life or type of work, we're going to have a biblical vision for women in God's place in the world, God's role in the world for us. It's got to be big enough for all of us. And so whether you're a student, a retiree, a mother who's focused on kids at home, there's a place for you in this conversation. So we would love for you to join us this Tuesday. We'll be here at the building. Um, we would love to invite you and encourage you to RSVP. We've actually had such a great response. We've already shifted locations in the building. And so um, your RSVP helps us plan accordingly. But join us this Tuesday. Doors will open at 6.15. And then we will go till... Um, we'll start content around 6.45. And then we'll go till 9 o'clock. And then we also have for the men in the room, we're excited to invite you to join a similar conversation. One of Joanna's colleagues, Brian. Ryan Gray is going to be joining us um, on February 27th. That's a Monday evening. I encourage you to mark your calendar or come with your gospel community. And um, with that, we would love for you to um, sign up online as well at parkchurch.org backslash events. So um, see you Tuesday. Yes, we're excited to have you.
Thank you both. Yeah, I encourage you, uh, women in the room, come this Tuesday and then uh, February 27th for, uh, for the guys in the room. We're going yeah, to have a similar conversation. Uh, Brian Gray, like Kyle said, will be, will be leading that. Um, we're going to step into a time of communion. And even conversations that I had after last service, as much as we can try to talk about how does our faith in Jesus and our work, how do these things really come together, it can feel like there's such a, a divide between the two. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll invite yeah, communion uh, servers to go ahead and, and come up, come forward uh, to gather the elements. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.